within ourselves, we carry more than just the genetic makeup of what color our hair will be, how tall will be, et cetera. We carry within us our ancestors. Science is starting to catch up with that wisdom. In fact, they're able to track now how trauma changes the DNA and the working of the DNA for three generations. What Native Americans teach us in this, with this concept of love memory, is that when you heal yourself, you're not just healing yourself. You're healing all those who came before you because they're still within you. And you're changing the world for generations that come. It's Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat with ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. I'm Polly Reese. Fam, I am delighted to bring to you today the Reverend Dr. Hillary Raining. She is the rector, that's the chief pastor, of St. Christopher's Episcopal Church in Gladwin, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. She teaches in the doctoral program at the General Theological Seminary in Chelsea of Manhattan, New York City, and she is the founder of The Hive Apiary, a wellness and spirituality website that supports progressive Christian and spiritual people to grow in their faith and wellness to help them in their efforts to change the world. Special shout out, hey, how are you, to those people who are listening to the show today natively on The Hive Apiary. Glad to have you with us. A quick content warning, we talk a lot about Hillary's research into trauma, blood memory, her family's history of reclaiming their indigenous heritage, and pretty deep into the weeds of Christian systematic theology. So if those things are not right for you to listen to, feel free and switch this one off and we'll catch you in the next one. Moving on from that, we talk about how to pack for a pilgrimage, Christian spirituality, Hillary's indigenous roots, and today's release day being the 12th day of Christmas, the meaning of Christmas to her as an Episcopal priest. Please enjoy my conversation with Hillary. So one of the things that I wanted to bring up right away, since we are recording in the real world, um, is like the dream of, of like a soundproof world. Like we were just talking right before we hit record that like we all have, have like world noises everywhere. And, um, and like lawn mowing is happening in December. Of course it always happens that way. Right. One of my, favorite expressions for anybody who's trying to live the spiritual life. It comes from this old uh, Hindu proverb that says, before enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. After enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. It's funny. That is how it works. <laughs> I think most of the enlightenment comes from those moments of just like physical exertion. Like it's, it's like the the waxing on of the car. It's like the raking of the sand. It's the the fifteenth, twentieth, thirtieth mile, like on the trail on the bike. It's the the sixtieth, seventieth mile of the trek to like Holy Island in England. You know? Oh, absolutely. And uh, it's why it's why all monastic communities really have within their core aura et labora work and pray right it's, it's how it works because what becomes prayer is also work and when your work becomes your prayer you figured it out somehow it's really just it's the it's the way that we let our monkey mind have something very busy to do you know for, as it swings from thought to thought instead we give it the, yeah, the sweeping the laundry list whatever and then we get to be with god as that work yeah. is being done it, it, it makes everything sacramental makes everything holy 
we create this incredible hula hoop of, of praxis. And exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, a thing that we, that we share in common, in addition to uh, Anglican identity and praxis, a specific component of that is that both of us have an enjoyment of the practice of pilgrimage. Yes. Yes. Um, we, we've both taken taken several, um, and one of the ones we share in common being the pilgrimage to Holy Island. I mentioned it out, off of County Durham. Um, there is one specific point that I wanted to raise talking about the, the, the idea of embodiment. There are fewer things that I think are more important in having a successful pilgrimage than packing your bag well. Spiritually right? and physically, right? <laughs> what are you carrying with you? <laughs> exactly. So I would love to know when you know that you have a, a pilgrimage that's going to have that level of physical exertion, you're plodding through mud, probably rain, probably cold, what all things are essentials in uh, the pilgrims pack? Mm. This is so, it's a, a question that I just enjoy immensely already. So thank you for asking it. Yeah. Um, because you're so right. Every time I take a pilgrimage, it starts well before you take your first step in the prayer and the preparation, etc. And and what you put in your bag or your soul that you're going to carry with you is is with you every step of the way until you set it down or use it up or whatever. So um, if we're talking practicalities, one of the things I love uh, about the way my parents raised me, we were, we were big backcountry backpackers, even from a very right. early age. The very first thing that my sister and I ever carried in our backpack were our own diapers for our first hike. <laughs> <laughs> That's how young we were. They started us young. So, uh, I mean, talk about an essential on, on the road, Absolutely. Uh, especially at a certain age. Um, but they, what they really used to say is my dad has this little maxim that I'm sure he learned from the Boy Scouts, which is, uh, you know, mind the ounces and the pounds will take care of themselves. Mind the ounces and the pounds will take care of themselves. By that, it means pay attention to every little thing you're putting in that pack because you have to carry yeah. every every bit of it. But beyond just the weight of it, so obviously you want to go minimalist as you possibly can. You want to do, uh, you want to wear clothes that you don't mind wearing a couple times in a row. You want to right. bring uh, the ability to get water, but also like a filter, so you can don't have to carry all the water with you. Right. But beyond all that, beyond the actual physical weight, you have to also think about the spiritual weight that you're carrying when you go on pilgrimage, because it's not just tourism. It's not even just religious tourism. It's the ability to take step after step with yourself and with the spirit. So as much as we may like to think that we are, um, we're able to kind of go gently into the world with all of our, our internal baggage, it's with us, especially when we're pilgriming and we tend to have fewer distractions. Hopefully, yeah. right? We have, like, I don't pack my computer. I don't pack right. my iPad, right? Those things stay home because you're supposed to be sinking deeply in with the spirit. And so all the stuff that's there that you use to distract yourself uh, and try to numb yourself from uh, before you get on the road comes with you. What the benefit right. of it is, though, is that's the intent. And every step you take is a chance to, to lay something down. You know, ancient pilgrims used to bring rocks with them and they would set them at different way stations along the way uh, as almost a marker of, 
of sins they wanted to leave or uh, uh, internal struggles and habits they wanted to leave. That's still very much baked into the role of Pilgrim today. So I always like to carry with me um, maybe a, a set of prayer beads or something mm -hmm. physical I can also hold and kind of use as a prayer uh, companion. It's worth the extra mm -hmm. ounce to have something like that with me since we're going to be working through the baggage with each and every step. Mm -hmm. um, what is like the, the physical sustenance, the dietary preference of the Hillary reigning the pilgrim? Oh, when I'm on pilgrimage itself or everyday life? Because those might I mean, be two different. <laughs> well, let's let's start with pil I, okay. I mean because because we we know we know how many times a busy rector and and mom and like spouse and uh, and beekeeper and yogi how many times they regularly get to just sit and eat a meal mindfully. <laughs> uh, let's start with pilgrimage. All right, that's true. That's a little more controlled actually. Pilgrimage, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a great question. What what I tend to do when I'm on pilgrimage is I, I look at how much physical exertion is going to take. Um, if yeah. it's more of a pilgrimage that's a gentle style, let's say, well, there it might be place to place, but I might be driving, etc. Um, I know that physically, what I like to do is is um, eat very very vegan or as close to vegan as I possibly can, so that my body isn't also doing the work of extra digestion as well yeah. as, as uh, everything else is trying to digest spiritually. However, when, I, when I'm going on a true hiking pilgrimage, um, I'll instead make sure that it's high protein, um, you know, calorically dense food, but also nothing right. with a lot of sugar in it. Not, like I try to still stay as close to macronutrients, micronutrients as possible so that it's, um, it's very clean. It's like a clean burn, you might say. Um, yeah, that, again, just so that the body has what it needs to do the work, um, but that each food and each bite becomes part of the consideration that you mm -hmm. that you take along with you. The other thing about pilgrimage, mm -hmm. uh, when it's a more of a the physical exertion, tends to take you to other places of the world sometimes where it's a little mm -hmm. bit harder to find uh, vegetarian and vegan options. Um, so uh, one of the principles of pilgrimage is uh, the empty bowl mindset that you come with mm -hmm. your beggar's bowl in hand, uh, hope, trusting that God's good grace is going to flow through whatever circumstance you come through that day. So you may not have much of a choice in what's, what you might eat, but part of being it is like you're God's guest on this journey. And mm -hmm. so, you know, what a guest, good guest do, they, they eat what's given to them with a grateful heart. So some of it is also the surprise of what comes to you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the delightful surprise. <laughs> Where is or is not um, caffeine in this ratio? Oh, Are it, how yeah. how how does how do, because one does not survive on on clean calories alone. Right now, I I'm a little weird. I've actually like never had caffeine as part of my daily life. Like so, okay. it's, okay. it's easy for me to step away from it. But I but I okay. wouldn't I wouldn't say that everybody has to do that, especially if you're if you need the energy to get going, um, yeah. because many, many different styles of uh, religious practice or spiritual practice don't don't ask you to give up caffeine. Now, if, sure. if yeah. I'm doing a fast, on the other hand, um, I, I would recommend somebody maybe go off caffeine at that time because um, it's it's great to see what the body is holding on to day in and day out. But, yeah, I'm a little bit lame like that. Any anything like that kind of makes me jittery. So. <laughs> Okay, so you're 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 blowing my mind a little bit. Um, 
I, I, I know a, a lot of our listeners are not necessarily um, church-affiliated people, um, mm-hmm. may not know um, the, the sort of schedule that you keep, but you might be one of the most very immediately awake folks that I know. So short of like, we're recording very early in the morning. We lo- we logged in at at, um, at 10 before nine in the morning. Um, you were already like more ready than I was. I was, I was like, damn. Um, like you are like on and ready. Like you told me your, 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 your schedule. Like we're like, should we get on earlier? So that, so that like we can get you off the time. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, inwardly I'm thinking like, Oh my God, I have to be ready by, by 10 <laughs> of nine instead of nine. What is going on? Um, I would love to know where all of the energy or at least what looks like this incredible, like reserve of energy comes from. Oh, you are, you are too kind. Again, smoke and mirrors, right? We were talking about (laughs) my my light here. We got all extra light. Uh, Well, first of all, thanks again for being willing to adjust that. that Yeah. Yeah. Um, Part of it, I think is because I've never had caffeine. My body doesn't, doesn't look for that particular uh, help sure. in the morning. So that's sure. it's a little bit of self-fulfilling prophecy in that regard. Um, I would say that it when my spiritual practice is going right and when it's when it's in the most sustaining posture, I try to go to bed really early so that I can get up ideally around 5.30 or 6 in the morning, probably earlier when it's, wow. when it's in a better movement. Um, that yeah. does not always happen. I'm in a, a, a chapter right now in the last couple of weeks where I've kind of slept in and called that meditation. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that uh, passes muster with my spiritual director, but she'll have to tell me about it. Um, but that allows me to have a time with the true energy source every day, right? You know, the, yeah. the getting up early allows me to have quiet, peaceful space carved out with the spirit. Because by the time I get to the end of the meditation and the yoga and the reading or whatever else and prayers that are part of that time frame, um, my day has already started. And so by nine, it feels like the energy has been gathered, if that, if yeah. you will, that's been gathered. Um, the other, the other thing I try to do as much as possible is to hold fast to a day of Sabbath. Not always easy to do. Um, I think it's probably one of the hardest of the Ten Commandments to keep. Uh, for those who are familiar with that tradition, um, one of the top commandments is have a Sabbath and keep it holy. Yeah. Uh, not because God is looking for an extra bit of worship, but rather God knows how sustaining that is for the soul, yeah. that, that time with spirit. Um, I can always tell when I've not been practicing that as a spiritual practice, <laughs> but uh, because because you won't see the energetic Hillary. Yeah. <laughs> The, the number one tool, though, that I've found in my own life, maybe you're the same way, the kind of canary in the coal mine of, of when sure. I'm not uh, sitting with, with spirit enough is when I feel resentment. I, I don't know about you, but resentment's my like, uh-oh, your change oil light is on uh, because it starts to slip me out of gratitude. It starts mm-hmm. to say things like, oh, if only you didn't have to do this. Oh, if only you didn't have to do that. This person, blah, 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 right? And uh, suddenly, I, when I catch myself, I realize, oof, you're you don't have enough energy in your tank. You need to you need to take a day. You need to step away for a little bit. Yeah, there there's there's so much to that that that, that whether it's an emotion or like a somatic sensation or an observation of an interaction with another person, 
that our our body knows our mind knows like our emotions know and and people observe that in us which is not to say that all of these emotions don't have their place of expression and aren't entirely normal and standard in the variety of the human experience but it just communicates something to us Mm, i i absolutely agree with all of that i a lot of my research is on how trauma affects body and spirit and 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 how very deeply that goes Uh, i mean one of the best books on this topic right now is the body keeps the score and i love the title of that because it talks about how trauma is lived in the body on a cellular hormonal level like it is there alone in bigger ways uh organs mind etc it writes itself like code into our being it's like it's like but but you can't you you can't use the this is where this is where the metaphor of like a computer virus breaks down because trauma communicates something that is potentially beneficial to us that can yeah if we if we translate it right um it can it can really help like our our overall well-being some would think some would hope. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, what I love about the work that I've been able to look at with trauma, et cetera, is that it's the trauma that has happened in our life isn't our fault, but the healing is our opportunity. I, I, I think Nadia Bowles Weber said that, so I want to give her credit if she did, but it's, it's such a powerful quote. And when we heal our trauma, it's, or at least incorporate it, you know, healing trauma might suggest that we get over it. Rather, I like to think of it as being incorporated into the life that we're going to live from here on out. It takes a lot of work because it means every day we have to create space to deal with those emotions that are around trauma, which may be the hardest emotions to sit with. So we might have to do it little by little by little every day, which is why like an embodied practice like yoga or pilgrimage or et cetera becomes so important. But, uh, but once you are able to start that work, uh, which is a hard, hard hurdle, but when you can do that, what you find is you get to choose joy, which is, which is a powerful part of, um, I think, the belief system of both the Christian faith and so many uh, religions, that choosing joy is not the same thing as choosing happiness. Right. Happiness is fleeting. Ha- what makes you happy one second may not make you happy in the next. But joy is that thing that is so cultivated, it really is cultivated, that when we start to work on it in our soul with the spirit, it can even let us at the grave make our song, Alleluia, as the, mm-hmm. the line from the funeral uh, burial service says in our tradition. And yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. The last thing I'll, I'll say about that is um, in the indigenous Native American tradition, there's a concept called blood memory. And blood memory is that ability to say that within ourselves, we carry more than just the genetic makeup of what color our right. hair will be, how tall will be, et cetera. We carry within us our ancestors for seven generations before us and seven generations ahead of us. Science is starting to catch up with that wisdom. In fact, they're able to track now how trauma changes the DNA and the working of the DNA for three generations when somebody has a trauma, more than just, again, how their DNA works, but how they are experiencing the emotionality of trauma. They have, they're have they more likely to be depressed. They're more likely to have PTSD symptoms, et cetera, for three generations. So what, what Native Americans teach us in this, with this concept of love memory, 
is that when you heal yourself, you're not just healing yourself. You're healing all those who came before you because they're still within you. Mm. And mm. you're changing the world because for whomever you help to bring into this world, either physically or a spiritual uh, mentorship or, or friendship, etc., you're changing that experience below you as well, right? For generations that come. So you actually heal the world by healing yourself. Mm. And I think that's an incredibly important piece of uh, of motivation when somebody is looking at trauma in their body or in their soul uh, and and how they can uh, find the motivation to take that first really hard step. Yeah. Um, before we continue, I wanted to give you the opportunity to uh, to shout out to name your lineage because you told me um, that you do trace some lineage yourself. Yes, thank you. Yes, um, uh, my on my mother's side, uh, we're members of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa, and mm. it's a wonderful community in Michigan. And uh, I was just with them actually in October. Uh, we I try to go up uh, now that I'm adult. I'm trying to I try to go up and be with them yeah. as much as possible. Um, in so many families, mine is a great example of this. Uh, my grandpa was born on the reservation and um, would have likely been raised there, but sure. his mother was very concerned that he would he would be taken. It's you know right next to ca the Canadian border that he would be taken yes. to um, one of the residential schools. Yes. and so she she told him to to pass as white because he could, uh, and and so so much of our family's identity of identity of indigenous heritage is being rediscovered as it is with so many people in this generation because they were forced to abandon it for assimilation and you know the cultural genocide that was uh, enforced upon them so it's an interesting mm. time to uh to be reclaiming a part of yourself that you you weren't allowed to claim for so long and so many people are doing that exact work right now I wonder if you can tell me um, if, if this, and if this is if this is a little bit too close to the vest, then fine, we'll move on. But I wonder if you can share a little bit more about what that reclaiming of identity has been like for you. Yeah, yeah, uh, emotional and intellectually amazing. So it's it's been both those things. I'll start with the intellectual first because that's kind of the the more academic piece. Um, so one of the, the hats that I wear is uh, I love liturgical scholarship. I get to teach it in, at seminary, and it's just so much fun for me. It's like a playground to think about how we use our rituals to put our souls in the posture of least resistance to be yeah. with the spirit, right? That to me is kind of how ritual might be, might be one way to describe it. Among others, shout out to the General Theological Seminary in Chelsea, yes. New York. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Go, go, Penguins. <laughs> uh, also, so the most the most interesting mascot that a theological seminary could potentially consider a penguin of all things. <laughs> I think it's because of the. I I don't know. I'm not a as alum, so I don't know the whole history. But I will I will say I think it's probably because of the black and white motif, and so like. Oh sure. You know, yeah, sure. I think that might be it, from what I recall. <laughs> yeah, because because spirituality is one hundred percent black and white. Absolutely. Right, exactly. Sure. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> I think maybe more like collar and clergy shirt. I, I think is where they were going with it. But okay, we'll, because yeah. clergy life is one hundred percent black and white. <laughs> I know. I, I didn't. I didn't come up with the the metaphor. <laughs> what? Yes, anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um. So the, the joy has been to 
to journey and actually spend a lot of time on my reservation working with the traditional medicine community and uh, and learning about the rituals uh, of of my own people, which my blood memory uh, would tell me every time I step in there that this is this is a natural way for me to pray. It's a it's a way that of prayer that is already in my my DNA of my soul, and uh, and it was amazing how, for example, the, one of the first times I went. We went to a ceremony to open up our powwow, and it's a day-long ceremony. You spend in tents, and you tell stories, and there's blessings, and there's healing, et cetera. It's gorgeous. And my mom and I went, and we knew what to do without being told. It was weird. It was like it's very. I mean, think of how how even when you just come to um, any standard worshiping community, you might not know what to do. Do I grab this book? Yeah. What is, you know, what even is a hymnal, right? Like there's all these sorts of things. It wasn't like that at all. It was like, we just knew. And yeah. that to me is just an example of the, the way it's been both stimulating for my own, I guess you might call it academic research, but, but sure. it's been, it's just been hitting home in my heart more and more and has changed the way I pray in many, many different ways or has explained some of the ways that I pray to myself where I'm like, Oh, Okay, that's why I do that. That's why it feels that like so good to do this style of prayer, etc. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a truly beautiful, beautiful thing. One of the things they do is, for example, is they they um, they give you your name, your spirit name, and they do this in this beautiful ritual with drums and incense. And the uh, indigenous healer goes into a trance to go into the spirit world to get your name. And it's just one of those things where um, I went almost 40 years without knowing that name uh, and then when i heard it, it was like yeah. wow wow that's that's a part of who i am in a big way so it's it's incredible to be able to step into a mm. family lineage that makes all the sense in the world to my soul but i didn't i didn't know about growing up there's a there, there's a couple of things that I, that i want to loop back to um sure. that, that i that i heard in that explanation that just feel very connected to this conversation of, of embodiment and practice we were in in the language of christian sort of mainline theology we would use the language of incarnation yes. um one of the pieces being your body just knowing how to participate in ritual um i wonder for for our friends who listen, who are who are very spiritually minded, who are thinking about like the big unanswerable questions, but not, might not necessarily use our language, um, a, that that being very conventionally Christian religious terms to describe that the indescribable. Um, there are a couple of terms I kind of want to define. You being. The, the practitioner of liturgical and systematic theology that you are. Um, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit when you say less connected, less connected to the, the, the Chippewa piece, but connected to um, the Christian piece. When, when we talk about the spirit or the Holy spirit, can you tell us a little bit more about what that means to you? <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's not too big of a uh, question. Explain <laughs> the Holy Spirit part of the Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> you know the the beautiful thing about about thinking about how the holy spirit works is that it's such a we know it 
and it's also more nebulous than we can describe. It's, it's mm. in some ways the thing we know best. It's also the thing we know least. And here's, here's what I mean by that. In, in the Christian tradition, um, in, it, all the way through the entirety of the Bible, so you know, we have this Abrahamic uh, religious tradition yeah. that talks about the Holy Spirit being like the breath of God. The, the way that the spirit moves over creation is this, this ruha, this feeling of uh, actual living, breathing spirit baked into every part of, of our creation. And then when you move further on into the story, we get this, uh, this entire emphasis within the wisdom tradition and wisdom literature, which, are, which are, includes things like the psalm or the prophet. So these voices mm -hmm. that are ancient, right, in, in the tradition. Mm -hmm that talk about the spirit as being there, not only at the beginning of creation, but they name her Sophia, so that she gets this mother female quality and she is the wisdom, because Sophia means wisdom, that is in, in, in part of every single part of creation, because she's there helping God, <laughs> helping being part of God to create this entire creation that we have. And then as you move further into what's known as the New Testament in the Christian tradition, you hear again uh, this beautiful description of this mystical quality of the Spirit of God once more moving like a breath, like the breath of God. Uh, and especially at this feast that we have in this tradition called Pentecost, which is where the the disciples who were following Jesus, once Jesus, as we believe, was ascended into heaven after his resurrection, yeah, they're yeah. left alone for this moment where they don't know what the heck to do. It's very, very scary. It's how maybe many of us feel all day, every day. Like, what are we supposed to do with this crazy broken world that that can come at us at any moment, right? And what Jesus tells them and then what does indeed happen is that there's going to be this advocate that comes. So somebody who's with us, uh, something that that gives us this breath of life so that even when we don't know what to say, it's going to help us say the right words or pray without without words. Paul calls it groaning uh, like a, like a, a, a without words to pray. Right. And sure enough, at that moment, again, that we call Pentecost, the disciples feel the spirit coming in like a mighty wind. There's these tongues of flames that, that are described as, as coming over a person's head in that room because they're so alive with the spirit. And that, so that breath of God being, seeing that as the Holy spirit means that it's as nebulous as, as air and wind and as present and as grounded within us as our actual breath, because within us is the breath of God. So the spirit is life force. The spirit is the creator spirit. The spirit is ever present and not just in this, wouldn't it be nice to feel alive sort of way? No, no. And the, yeah, the yeah. sustaining of, of life itself from our very, very breath. So yeah. it's, it's everything. This will, this, this will help to illustrate some of the difference in terms of cultural exposure between the two of us and and the 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 not so different um generational divide but still different enough there were like five different specific um movie thoughts movie scenes that came to mind life force <laughs> i'm thinking i'm thinking of disney's hercules where where the, the witches are cutting the string um 
the faith, the breath of God, the India, um, Indiana Jones and the last crusade. And, you know, like the, those, those heroic acrobatics that, that Harrison Ford clearly won't be doing in 2023. Uh, um, yeah, and um, a mighty wind. I mean, the yes. the, the folksman, the Christopher Guest film. Anyway, um, that's a great one, by the way. <laughs> yeah, because it's and and why does it work as a metaphor from everything from a uh, a fake documentary about folk singers to action films to cartoons? Right? Like, why does it work across all these? Well, here's why: because it it is in all things, right? There's yeah. this there's this with the with the understanding of the spirit. There's a wisdom in all things. There's a life in all things. And and it means then we're all cr- connected, not to sound like, oh, everything is connected. But yeah, everything is connected, right? You know, yeah. in, this, in this life that is but one giant life together. And, when, and what that changes, I think, everything when, when we believe in spirit that way is it means everything is holy. Everything has been touched yeah. by spirit. Everything deserves love. Everything deserves uh, care. It, everything in this creation deserves our care because it's it's a part of the spirit itself. And when you start seeing those subtle differences, then you realize how how far we have gone in some of the Christian tradition afield from that. How far we've gone from from remembering that in the last book of the Bible, which is called Revelation, which often gets painted as this very weird, wild, scary type of book, and some of it yeah. is. Um, but there's this beautiful line where it says, you know, and God will make all things new, talking about this last, last great act of creation that brings everything mm-hmm. together. It doesn't say God makes all new things <laughs> very specifically, yeah. like it, like the translation doesn't say that it's God makes all things new, which means that all that is will be. And that I think means we have to love it and care it for it yeah. as it is because of the work of the spirit within it. Yeah, that, that that's such a that's such a great distinction to make. Um, there are three words that that sort of brings to mind that I can never really tease out the the theological difference. Like the the well, I, I mean, it might not even be theological. It might just be different lexicographical differences of meaning. Um, but those being reconciliation. Um, restoration and then uh remaking Mm, um i wonder if i wonder if we can just do like a little bit of thinking because we talk about these things Uh, i know that churches are having this real reckoning with the loss of financial and moral authority particularly around issues of anti-racism anti-queer phobia um, anti-colonialism um, I, I wonder if we can just sort of like muse and, and, and spin a, spin a yarn for a minute. I'd love to, I'd love to. A lot of what I, I love looking at within the realm of ritual studies in particular, liturgical studies is the way, um, is the way so many of our, our, some of our most beloved rituals have been used as tools for colonialization, for empire, for, uh, mm. work that has been detrimental and, uh, deadly to this to other humans and to this planet. So um, I'm very happy to talk about this. Uh, let's start with the word reconciliation. I think is one that you highlighted that that to me encapsulates uh, so much encapsulates so much of what we're hoping to do with this one precious moment in time that we have in uh, in this history with the spirit. 
the term reconciliation tend to, tends to get used, I think, as a, um, it's time to have a reconciling moment, right? Like almost like a, 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 there's a forcefulness to it that makes it sound as though somebody's going to have to pay a price. Mm. In fact, what reconciliation means in the both liturgical world and scripturally is, is a return. The, the root words actually have the same sort of feeling as reconcile as to return, to almost turn around from the road that you might be walking on and come back to your true self, to come back to the spirit, come back to the part where we're no longer harming ourselves, the planet and one another. That's a different thing, I think, than like, I can't wait to make somebody pay for uh, all the all the things that they have ever done wrong in their life, because no one of us has, can make it out of this um, without looking at their own life and saying, there are some things I need to be reconciled with, if we're being honest. Mm. And that's actually really, really good news, right? Because it keeps us from from believing that nothing is ever going to change. And and here's here's some of the reason why. In the Christian tradition, we have this thing called reconciliation of a penitent, uh, which is a very old-fashioned term for what we might think of as private confession in the Episcopal tradition. Um, and that talk about something that gets painted strangely within movies and et cetera, right? Like, you know, we, we conjure up this idea of a little confessional booth um, with somebody who's ready to tell us how bad we are, et cetera, right? You know, it's, it's been... And, and maybe rightly so. So much of the history of mm. private confession and reconciliation of a penitent has been wrapped up in using it to shame people into doing what the religious authorities want them to do, right? It's, we had a whole reformation based around <laughs> trying to reclaim abuses within a, a religious system that's trying to tell you because you're sinful, everything is bad with you. And the only thing you can do is hold fast to the church that's your one salvation, right? We, we're moving away from that uh, erroneous understanding. It's taken us 500 years to try to do it. But in that moving away, what we have been able to reclaim is a difference between shame and guilt, mm. right? Guilt is that thing where we look at our world and we say appropriately that some things have to change. Racism has to end. Sexism has to end. Homophobia has to end, right? This is not... It's not sustainable to to run a world on so much hatred. It just it, that does have to end. Yeah. And even within our own self, um, there's there are things that we know have to end. The pat like the patterns within ourselves of all of the things I just listed, or even just the patterns of uh, I always have to be right. Uh, I I have to I have to come in and tell everybody, you know, whatever like whatever pattern it is that you also need to shift within yourself. And those are the things of guilt, right? I've done mm -hmm. something wrong or we have done something wrong collectively and we need to change. That's good. That's good news. Where it becomes dangerous is when it becomes all about shame, right? Because shame says you've done something wrong or we've done something wrong because we are wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I did this sin because I'm a terrible thing. I should like, and of course I did, because nothing's ever going to get better. 
It has no Essen- room. For- essentially, I made a mistake because I'm a bad person, and then exactly. and then the logical extension of that is because I'm a bad person, I will continue making mistakes. Yeah. Where's the hope in that? Where's the, that's just corrosive, and that's also true if we believe that of our own structures of power. <laughs> it's easy to look at the world around us and say, "This is never going to change. We're on a you know uh, we're going off a cliff of a point of no return." In my darker moments. I can feel that way. Like, you know, humanity is never going to get better, et cetera. But if I give into that, I, I believe the narrative of shame, that we are such a, a shameful and broken world. There's no way, there's no way that we'll ever return to something uh, good and holy. <laughs> but I, I can't, I can't stay in that cynicism. I can't stay in that hopelessness. I have to say, absolutely, there are things that need to change. And I believe with the spirit and with one another, we can actually mm. change it within ourselves and within the society. Otherwise, what are we doing, right? Like what, what does any of it mean if we, if we don't actually think that the spirit is working with us and with one another, then yeah, it's easy to give into hopelessness. But reconciliation, more than anything, is a call for hope that we can indeed turn and walk back to that place where we're, we're created to be all along. It's it's a long walk for some for some of us and for some of our systems. It can be a long walk, but it's a, all it is is a turn in turning mm-hmm. back to the right direction. We so the 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 language that we use in Anglican theology and specifically um, it, we we talk a lot about um, vows of ordination um, where where we're rooted in Philadelphia. Um, we recently had a, had a big ordination service. Um, five um, five people were ordained as deacons. Very exciting. It's 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 essentially like a like like a group wedding. Um, <laughs> but we use this language of of uh, of ontology um, of of specifically the language of being. Um, and one of the things I think that you've identified that I think is really valuable to point out is that the language of goodness or badness, or at least the the side of badness, becomes very dangerous when we uh, equate it to people's identities at an ontological level. Mm-hmm. Um, this might be this this might be pushing a little bit deeper in um, than than perhaps we uh we have time for on this podcast so oh no we'll have to have you back another time oh but no I, <laughs> I would sit down and talk with you at any time <laughs> <laughs> thank you um but my question is thinking about this if there's if there's danger in in the, the the idea of badness or 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 equating equating badness at an ontological level is there an equivalent danger of equating goodness to any person um at an ontological level Absolutely. A hundred percent. So we see this across spiritual traditions. Whenever somebody is elevated to that sage on the stage, uh, guru level, uh, or even, you know, your, sure. your garden variety priest, whatever it might be, um, people, people project onto you an a, authority and a virtue that perhaps you do not have the maturity to carry. <laughs> <laughs> that might be one way of putting it. Now, we all, we all have charisms, uh, and th- that's a fancy word for saying spiritual gifts. We all have those, but we don't all have the maturity to use them. And in fact, in the mm. scripture, what is fascinating is when uh, we hear the early, uh, early Christians talking about how 
some people are doing incredibly high level spiritual healing. We're talking exorcisms. We're talking, you know, helping somebody who's never been able to walk before walk for the first time in their life, right? You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's these sorts of, you might call them miraculous changes. And yet they may not even be Christian or they may be doing it in the wrong way, or they might be really bad people that we, you know, I'm using bad people in quotes here, i.e. they might be doing morally questionable behavior. Let's put it that way. Right. And what Paul is and others are, when they talk about this are talking to the uh, community saying, just because you have some sort of gift or authority doesn't mean you have the maturity to actually exercise that and to be, and to hold it. And when that happens, when you have somebody who does not have the spiritual maturity, it's very dangerous for that person and for whatever community they're working with. For the person, because they start believing the falseness that people are saying about you. And you should never believe what people say about you, uh, good or bad, right? <laughs> right, like, to, like too much in the extreme. If you, if you believe too much about what people say is bad about you, you've entered into the shame realm, right? And when you believe all the good that people say about you, I, you're actually also in the shame realm because you don't believe that's who you truly are. Mm. And so what ends up happening is you start faking, you start lying, you start, right. You know, all the things that you've seen uh, people do, you start, you start thinking that morals don't, you're too enlightened to have to worry about morals or virtues or ethics, right? You know, they don't, they don't apply to me sort of thing. That gets so dangerous so fast because people then are, are looking to this person um, to, to have the answer. Some people will even project that what a person in that sort of religious authority says is the same thing that God is saying. Mm-hmm. And that's dangerous, dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. So the, the reason it's important to mention all this is because we are very much in a time frame where people are reevaluating their relationship with religion. Some of that uh, will, you know, the church will have to figure out a new way of being because it means that people maybe aren't in church in the same numbers. On the other hand, there's a, this happens in what we say, these 500 year cycles between um, reformations and and, and reforming church, church life. The last time we did this sort of major shift was about 500 years ago. Wouldn't you know it? Which means we're at the beginning of this major new shift in in following the spirit into what Christianity will be in the future. That's scary news and it's amazing news. It means that whatever we do in this time frame is going to be magnified. We're planting, as the expression goes, we're planting those seeds of trees that we won't sit under, but will be incredibly important for future generations of spiritual people. That means that we have to be really careful with our own spirituality because whatever seed we plant will grow, right? We, we uh, talk about the, the heart as being like soil, that if you're doing spiritual practices every day, you're tilling that soil every day. And that means whatever seed gets planted there will grow really well. Seeds mm-hmm. of love, peace, and joy will grow really well. Or seeds of greed, envy, power, lust, those will grow really well too. Yeah. So it's, it's a time to be cautious of, of our own relationship with religious authorities and spiritual authorities and to not throw the baby out with the bathwater either, right? Like to say, like, mm-hmm. what are the good things about our religious traditions, our spiritual traditions that can 
fortify us for a moment such as this. And it's really finding that balance. Balance, um, not just not 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 just for embodiment practices and and um, ADHD mind training anymore. Um, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, a little, little shout out for all of our neurodivergent listeners. Um, I want to pivot a little bit. The, we're thinking a little bit about like the the time and, and temporality. We're recording in December, and that means that we're getting ready for Advent 4. Um, that's the fourth Sunday of Advent, the season in which the, our, our spirituality anticipates, looks forward to um, the, birth of, the birth of Jesus. I wonder if you can tell me first and foremost, um, are you sleeping? (laughs) (laughs) It's such a great question for a priest this time of year. (laughs) Well, I mentioned earlier in a bit of a joke that um, my meditation time has also been sleep time lately, but that's, that's actually not so much of a joke in Advent. Advent is the season of dreamers. And I mean that both kind of for those of us who are dreaming, but for those who are following some of the scriptural stories that go along with Advent, um, it includes stories of uh, Joseph and the wise men being visited in dreams uh, and told what to do in this great mm-hmm. cosmic story of Jesus and the in, what we know as the incarnation. Uh, we hear we hear of people being visited by angels in this in these visions. And we think of dreams as being visions that happen when you're asleep and visions being dreams that happen when you're awake. Uh, So even those angelic visits take on this dreamlike quality. So in Advent, I try to incubate my dreams, you might say, by Mm. um, by engaging in a fast that has very low to hopefully no sugar and uh, low to no, hopefully, animal proteins. And when I change my body's chemistry like that, um, I find that my dreams become much more clarified. I I remember them for a lot longer when I wake up. Um, It's been the season where I've I've received intentions through dreams. Uh, It's it's a way to connect with the spirit even when I'm asleep. Um, Mm -hmm. And that happens in Advent in a way that I think is intentional to the season. And I'll say one more word about that. Um, so my other indigenous side is indigenous Celtic. Uh, and my dad is, when he did his 23 Me, he's like 98% Irish. <laughs> and I think the other two are like English, right? Like, so as Irish as you get with that lad. Sure. And, uh, and what's fascinating about it is the Celts kept this Advent season uh, very closely tied to the rhythms of the night. Um, in particular, we're close to the, you know, when we, ha- when we hit Christmas, those three days uh, of the of the the time when the sun is the lowest in the sky are this womb space, this darkness that we enter into intentionally because of the beautiful rebirth it gives us. And mm-hmm. uh, and so they they never thought of dark as negative and light as positive. Quite the opposite, they saw it as part of all of us and within the the Earth cycle. So this is our season where we're watching it shift from the longest nights of the year to when the sun starts returning in a fuller way. Mm. And, and we mark that shift within ourselves by, as the Celts did, uh, sitting out by bonfires, uh, telling stories in the longest nights. And in particular, on the Christmas Eve, once, they, once the Christian narrative came to the Celts, they started telling the Christmas story around bonfires as that mm. S-U-N starts returning as, as a marker of the S-O-N, Son of God, mm. returning into the world. 
So it's kind of intentional to keep space in, in the night times during the season as part of uh, the spiritual practice. I uh, for so I I, I want to dig in a little bit to to a topic that for for you and me being rooted in Anglican um, liturgical theology might be a, a little bit verboten, but but think forward for me, for me a little bit. Um, meditate meditate with me a little bit about um, Christmas in twenty twenty two. We've come out of a season where where for the last two years it's been probably physically unsafe um, yeah. to visit with family. Um, de- depending, I mean, we have RSV. We're still be- feeling the impact of COVID. I mean, like for the rest of our generation, yeah. there there will be residual effects. Um, I, I'm sure. I'm sure if we had time, we could meditate on on potentially the blood memory of of a pandemic like COVID as well, Absolutely. and then then also the monkeypox and thinking thinking about a lot of the global medical threats of of gathering together so it's not that we are it's it's not that we we have the level of physical safety that we had before in 2019 but perhaps we have a little bit more of the severe effects of covid uh, mitigated by um, vaccinations um what what is christmas in a world in a world that is emerging from lockdowns Mm, absolutely and you're so right. You know, as we find a little bit of space to look, I don't want to say look back on it because I agree with you. I st- we're, we're still feeling that, but we have mm-hmm. distance from the start, which is a, mm-hmm. which even the fact that we have a starting point is a very strange thing. Most global disasters aren't necessarily like right pinpoint it here, but we, yeah. we all kind of have a memory of March, 2020 of it yeah. kind of being like, a, Ooh, here we go. So since we have this, what you might call a telos, right? You know, like watching time progress from a moment in time going who knows where, it gives us a chance to enter into the same sort of story within uh, the Christian tradition of Christmas and the spiritual traditions that we have all over the world of, of looking for the return of hope and joy as a progression through time. One of the weirdest things and maybe most beautiful things about Christmas is this word we've tossed, tossed around a little bit called incarnation. And in the Christian tradition, we think of that as God coming into the world in form of, of a human, because as we've said, God has always been part of the world, but this is a unique moment in time where God takes on this human form. And, and we, we call that person Jesus in the Christian yeah. tradition. And what's amazing about that is that it puts God on a timeline. <laughs> right? A human life timeline, which is so weird when you think about it, because God can exist outside of time. God is time. God isn't time. God is, you know, like he not constrained by what we are as, as these created beings. And so God constrains God's self onto the same sort of human timeline. At Christmas, we get to stop and ponder that mystery and watch how God enters into the same sort of suffering and trauma that we have in our own life. The same sorts of betrayals of friendship, the same sorts of sickness, the same sorts of pains, griefs, loss, ultimate trauma of a violent mm-hmm. death, right? We have all these sorts of same uh, God's God walking through the human path with us. And Christmas gives us a chance to do the very important thing to do during trauma work, which is stop 
and feel the gratitude and mystery of it all, the wonder of it all. It's why Christmas feels like a quote, magical time of year. That's intentional <laughs> because if you yeah. don't stop and, and notice that, there's good brain science that tells us it won't stick. The brain is hardwired mm-hmm. to, to hold on to negative experiences because you know it makes sense evolutionarily wise. If you learned a negative experience faster, you'll be safer. The brain's job is to keep you safe, not joyful. Right. To actually hold on to gratitude is a mindfulness practice. It means you have to sit with it and let the brain absorb it. It takes the brain so much longer to imprint a positive experience than a negative one. Mm. Christmas is so quote unquote magical because for, for a second, for this brief second, we stop hopefully what we're doing to meditate anew on the wonder of that all of, of, of God coming into time with us, sharing this experience in a way that no God needs to ever do. They're above that. Right. And, and God is not above it. God through the incarnation is with us. And that to me is uh, the great hope of a Christmas in 2022. That's pretty good. Um, as we would say in our in, in our tradition, uh, that will preach. Let's hope so, because I have to write a Christmas sermon. So if you like that, that's uh, that's me test running some stuff. <laughs> I, I, no, no problems here. Um, uh, we're, we're we're just about to the end of our time, and I'm very grateful for the time that we spent together. So we've got one last question that we ask everyone as we're sort of closing out our time, and that's a little bit about impact and legacy. That question is, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? Mm. I want the world, hopefully, uh, to to have a a more loving understanding, to be gentle with one another, to feel the love of the spirit, and to honor one another. Um, that will mean changing a lot of the ways that we. We get so tied up in using one another uh, for material gain or spiritual gain or whatever. Um, And so I hope it looks a little more joyful and loving. Now, that sounds like maybe like a Miss America. Oh, I want world peace. No, I mean that actually, hopefully through through my life and and any sort of legacy I might give, um, Mm. show how how to walk such a path, not just talk about it, but hopefully have given people tools and um, an example. I hope in how to actually take those steps of, of reconciliation that we were talking about earlier. Like how do you do that work of returning to a love and a peace that is beyond all understanding? That's a good question. I hope, I hope, I hope to answer at least a small bit of it with my life. My thanks to the Reverend Dr. Hillary Raining. You can check out the Hive Apiary at thehiveapiary.com and on Instagram at The Hive Apiary. And a special shout out to everyone listening to the show through The Hive Apiary. Thanks for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. If you enjoyed listening to us, please support the show by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. You can follow us there for captioned video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good, to be the uncommon good.